2. We're going to be continuing our study there. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be reading beginning at verse 1. 2 Timothy 2 verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. As Paul is writing this uh, letter, this letter to uh, his dear child in the faith, Timothy, um, we remember that uh, Paul is in a dungeon. He's in a dungeon in Rome. Um, he is in chains. Remember my chains. Um, Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of my chains. Paul is in a dungeon. He's in Rome. He's in chains. And it's, it's cold. It's cold. Uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4 it says, remember, the, bring me the cloak that I left in Troas. It's, it's cold. He's in chains. He's in a dungeon. He's in Rome. And, uh, and, and in chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, his dear child in the faith, I solemnly charge you. The tone, the tone, if you will, not necessarily the words, but the tone of 2 Timothy is Paul who is about to die. He, he knows that he has been poured out and he knows that the time of his departure has come. He's there. He's perhaps in my mind's eye. I see him riding by uh, a lamp, you know, an olive oil lamp. It is dark. He is frail. He's cold and he's in chains. And he writes this letter to his dear child in the faith. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, I hate quotes. Tell me what you know. Paul is giving the critical things that Timothy needs to know. He doesn't, he doesn't elaborate anymore on the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians. It's not that kind of letter. In fact, Paul even says in verse 2 of our text, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you know, pass these on to faithful men. He doesn't summarize what they are. Paul doesn't have time for that. This is, this is the end of his life. These are the critical few things that, that Timothy will need to know in order to carry on his dear child in the faith. And, and the first thing that, that, that Paul says here is, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. 
as I was studying that, that phrase, just kind of, the Lord just really spoke to me through that phrase, be strong in grace. I mean, Paul, who, if he's giving the critical few, these are the critical things that you need to know, and he's going to give these wonderful word pictures, the, the picture of an athlete, the picture of a farmer, the picture of someone in military. He, but he, he begins this discussion was Timothy. Timothy, come along. I need to tell you this. Number one, number one, be strong in grace. And I thought, wow, is that what I, is that what I lead with? I mean, is that what you, in your interactions with others and you're in your way that you go about doing things, is that, the, is that your strong suit? You know, I, you know I, I, I know my verses and I know my doctrine. Oh, but man, I got to tell you, you have no, I really excel at grace. Is that you? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Lord, you know what? Strong. Are you strong in grace? This letter is one of those letters that's like, it's kind of different because it's so intensely personal, right? This is not like, read this to the churches. This is like Timothy. And so I kind of, as I'm studying the book of 2 Timothy, and you too, maybe you might like to put your name in where he's talking to Timothy. You, Sally, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Put your name in there. Go ahead. Do that. Is that you? It's kind of a funny thing to say, isn't it? Be strong in grace. Because Paul, when he was, when he was praying and he prayed, and this is captured in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Verse 9. You know, he, he says that, you know, this is where Paul was praying that the Lord would remove his chronic illness. He's praying that the Lord would remove his chronic illness. And he prayed three times <laughs> for that. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I browsed. I couldn't really research this very well. But I think that this is the only place that you find red letters in an epistle because God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. It's like, wait. Uh, okay, maybe this is just a Dave thing, but this is seeming like a little confusing. Be strong in grace. But your, God's power is perfected in our weakness. It's kind of interesting the way that works. God's grace is sufficient for you. And so ask yourself the question, am I strong in grace? Is that where the Lord finds me this morning? Strong in grace. The Bible says... <laughs> And it's good to know what the Bible says. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many will be defiled. Is there anybody that you know that doesn't deserve grace? 
Oh, not them. <laughs> Be strong in grace. You hear the words of the enemy. You are such a mess up. You always make mistakes. Look at you. You're a fool. One mistake after another, you'll never amount to anything. One failure today, another tomorrow. Look at your track record. Do you hear those voices? Are you strong in grace? The Bible says, and it's a good thing to know what the Bible says, um, I will draw near to the throne of grace. Is that you? I draw near to... When I hear those words, do you draw near to the throne of grace? Are you strong in grace? Strong in grace. Verse 2 is a little, like a little mini theme verse for our text. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is it. This is it. This is, this is like that handoff verse. You know, I've been, we've been wanting to, to show the baton. And last, last week, you know, Alan, he showed the handoff of the, of the Bible. It's like, okay, somewhere in here, we've got to have the track baton being handed off. And so, you know, here, you know, Paul is telling Timothy, the things that you've heard from me, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is, this is the handoff. And so, you know, as we're reading the verses, you're like, what's the point in all this? You know, why are, what is this saying? What it's saying is, the, the and the point of, of 2 Timothy, this is a handoff book. This is a handoff letter. And so Paul is taking Timothy, find, find the faithful men. Who are the faithful men? If you were to say, let me give you, Dave, an explanation of faithful men and women, what would that explanation be? You might say, well, I, I don't know. You know, they're, they're people who they stand the test of time. What other definition would you have? If this were a discussion, maybe we'll have that interactive. But, you know, maybe they, they do what they say. Maybe they're tested, under testing. You've seen them under difficulty, under adversity. And they, they do what needs to be done even under adversity. When no one is looking, they, they do the right thing. When no one's looking, faithful men, find the faithful men and entrust what you've heard, that treasure that's been entrusted to you, entrust these two faithful men, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is a call to invest in others, uh, to pour out what you have received from the Lord. Uh, this is, we're not to be like a stagnant um, pond, you know, that has no outlet. Um, think about your life and think about your accumulation of, of ex life experiences, of things that you have learned from the Lord, those treasures. Do you pass those on? You're finding ways, you know, the Bible says, even with encouragement, you know, those things when you've, when you've been like, oh, I'm down and out. You know, the Bible tells us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, that when, when you've been down and out and you've been comforted by the Lord in some way, shape, or form, ah, oh, thank you, Lord, that really helps. And then you move on. It's like, no, 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 no. You're to take that, hey, this really helped me. Hey, let this encourage you. And you're to pass that on. 
right? You, t- you comfort others with the comfort that you have been comforted with. Don't be a stagnant, you know, pond. There needs to be an outflow. And so Paul is, Paul is telling Timothy, he's saying, look, find the faithful men. Pass this on to others. Now, where we plan to spend a majority of the sermon this morning is on these three illustrations. The illustration of, of the soldier, the illustration of the, of, the, um, of the athlete, and the illustration of the farmer. We're, we're going to have to kind of park there and muse on these illustrations that are there. Why are they there? And what's the meaning that's intended by them? And sort of by definition, I'm instructed by the text to do that because that's what it says I'm supposed to do in verse 7. It's like, okay, David, for the sermon today, here's what you're supposed to do. We are to consider what Paul is saying, for the Lord will give us understanding and everything. We have that in verse 7. So in some sense, that's what we're supposed to do this morning is muse on the illustrations of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer and kind of look at them and think, hmm, you know, that's interesting, or how do you relate to that? And what do we learn from those three individuals, those three word pictures, those three illustrations? And so we're going to be spending a majority of our time kind of looking at that. And uh, number one is, is the soldier. Now, if we're going to look at this, uh, it says right there, Paul says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I'm worried. I'm worried about this section of the sermon because it's like, oh no, I don't want this to happen. It's I don't want to, to talk about the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer and say, that's really interesting. You know, isn't that interesting? It's like, oh, you know, we can kind of learn that from the soldier, from the athlete, and the farmer. And hmm, that's pretty interesting too. Because I don't think that that's what Paul's purpose is in talking about these three different illustrations. And here's why. Because Paul says, join me. The NIV has join me right there in verse 3. Paul says, suffer with me or join me in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul is giving these illustrations not so that they will um, kind of be interesting for us to look at. And so we'll have kind of this, you know, model of, of Christianity that we can talk about, but rather that we would be able to join with Paul and, and enter into. I don't want it to be sort of like from the outside looking in. I want it to be from the, now we got it, inside looking out. I mean, if, if this were a one-on-one and Paul were talking to me and he, were, he would basically say, hey, Dave, hey, Dave, join me in suffering, um, suffering hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And I would say, oh, wow, you are asking me to do something. Yes, I'm asking you to do something. So they're not just static illustrations. They're invitations, if you will. These are invitations. These are invitations to enter into do it this way. The theme for second, this, our study in 2 Timothy is, 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 is sort of this idea of 
you know, endurance for troubled times. We know that these are difficult times, troubled times. And in a way, I think this is the how to do that kind of section. This is a, a, some text, some ideas, some illustrations that will help us know how to navigate through and, and how to endure in troubled times. You know, I'm not really good with statistics, and in some sense, when statistics go up, you know, my eyes kind of begin to just roll back in the back of my head. But, you know, um, we're a minority, you know. Um, there's a Pew Research thing recently came out um, by 2070. Um, Christianity will be a minority religion in the United States. Um, and I thought, well, 20, so that's broadly, that's, that's including places like Tennessee, you know. They put praise Jesus on McDonald's, you know, there. I mean, they're all Christians there. So this is this average all over the, the United States, 2070. So I thought, well, what is it here in the Bay Area? It's like it's 10%. It's 10% of people here in the San Francisco Bay Area are evangelical Christians. You're a minority. And so, and so your ideas, what used to be, you know, kind of normal um, moral value that you think, well, everybody thinks this. No, you're, you're a bigot. And, and the values that you have, people think you're narrow-minded. And so, you know, as time is going to go on, you know, the, the tides will change. These are troubled times. And so Paul gives us these instructions for troubled times, how to endure for troubled times. And he says, you know what? Enter in. It's an invitation. Join me in suffering, join me in suffering hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The word suffer here is, is given as, it's an aorist imperative. It's an er, What that means is that you must, and you must do it now, and you must do it thoroughly. This isn't like a suggestion, this is a command. Paul is giving a command, join with me in suffering for, um, in suffering, uh, as, uh, for Christ as a good soldier. And so we have this idea of military. Now here we just kind of need to think for a minute and get our hands around the word picture that's here. Military people have, they have commanding officers. Military people, they receive orders. Uh, military people, they have enemies. Uh, we're just musing on this idea of a soldier. And, and uh, uh, people in military, they, they go on tours where, the folk, where there's focus on a mission to be accomplished. People in the military live a, a life in Spartan accommodations when they're deployed. I was looking at some, some YouTube videos of, of soldiers on, in deployment in Afghanistan and their accommodations. I mean, they're, they're Spartan. There's not a lot there. Yeah, they got a TV and they have some video games, but there's really not much there. I mean, they, they do makeshift things and they're, and they're Spartan accommodations. People in the military have mottos. Um, in the U.S. Army, I saw the label on the back of Larry's wheelchair. You know, the U.S. Army, the, 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 mo the motto for the U.S. Army, it's 244 years old. It says, this we will defend. Uh, the motto for the U.S. Marine Corps is, is Semper Fidelis or Semper Fi, always faithful. And so on it goes. The, the people in military, they wear uniforms. They have mottos. They fight. Um, they have enemies. 
and he talks about uh, be a be a what he says here. He says be a, as a good soldier, a good soldier. Think for a minute. Think for a minute. We're we're considering these things, right? We're musing on these things. We're we're thinking about military and soldiers, good soldiers. You know any good soldiers? How about how about the the Medal of Honor recipients? How about let's let's look at a few Medal of Honor recipients. I, I asked my son who has a, a coffee book table and it's this big thick table. It's all about Medal of Honor recipients. It's just you, know, you could read that thing and just read it all day long. They're suspenseful and just like whoa. Um, here's a Medal of Honor recipient, um, uh, Florent uh, Groberg. He, he basically tackled a guy with a suicide vest. And the suicide vest blew up, threw him 10 feet. I mean, it's like, okay, these are people that are tackling people with suicide vests. These are Medal of Honor recipients. Um, then there's uh, Leroy Petty. In a deadly firefight, he picked up a live grenade to throw it back at the enemy and lost his hand in the process. And then there's, then there's Ryan Pitts. Ryan Pitts, he was in a firefight with 200 Taliban until he was alone. He fought back with grenades that he basically cooked off. I didn't know what that meant. To cook off a grenade, basically you pull the pin and you wait until like the last second. And then you throw it so that the other enemy won't have a chance to throw it back at you. It's like, oh, that takes some putzpah or other kinds of things. Um, Here's, uh, here's Clinton Ramesha. Uh, he, he was there uh, defending Camp Keating in Afghanistan when it was attacked by 300 Taliban soldiers. Uh, 30 Afghan government troops that were with them ran. They dropped their weapons and ran. The 50 Americans that remained fought. Uh, Clinton's upper body was badly damaged by an RPG after getting patched up. He basically picked up his machine gun, took a strategic position at the, to defend the ammunition depot, and manned a machine gun and, and took out several uh, uh, Taliban machine gun nests and, uh, until the fort was secured. It's like, okay, you know, these, these, are, these, are, good, these are good soldiers. Good soldiers. Um, now, so we're musing on soldiers, and I don't know if there's anybody here who's now ready to go dive on a, a hand grenade or pick up a live one. Is anybody ready to go do that right now? It can be kind of hard to relate to. We hold it off at a little distance. That's, that's them. I, I'm not in a coffee book table. I'm not, uh, I'm not a Medal of Honor recipient. Maybe a little bit more relatable might be another hero of the faith, uh, Jim Elliott. He was a good soldier of Christ Jesus, of course. I read this from his personal journal, journal of June 1955. He writes, My flesh often lacks the deep feeling that I should experience at such times. There was a, a baptism, and Jim Elliott is kind of relating, feeling, blah, as a result of the baptism. He wasn't having consistent quiet times, and he was just recognizing that he was just kind of maybe a little out of step with the Lord. A little relatable, maybe, to you and to me. There was a certain dryness in the form this morning, but I cannot stay for feelings. So cold is my heart most of the time that I almost 
always operating on the basis of pure commandments, forcing myself to do what I do not always feel simply because I am a servant under orders. Let's highlight some important words there just to emphasize. He writes, I cannot stay for feelings. I am a servant under orders. A little bit more relatable to you and me, perhaps as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, that you're willing to take your feelings, the feelings of the moment, and put them aside. And you're willing to say, you know what? I am a soldier. I am a servant under orders to do what needs to be done. Lord, tell me, and I will do it. Be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is So if we were to look maybe at each of these three models and, and kind of think about, well, what are we supposed to do with this? You know, what are, the, what are the attitudes and what are the actions from each of the three illustrations that I want to take home with me today? Maybe as a good soldier, you would say this. You would say, you know what? I cannot stay for feelings. I cannot stay for feelings. And the actions, I am a servant under orders. A good soldier. Be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Next, we have the athlete. Let me blank that. Verse 5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete. Let's, let's muse on athlete and see, you know, what do we learn by this model that's been put forth of the athlete? What can we learn from him? Um, now, you all know that, you know, naturally where you want to go is, I know athletes, you know, they train right? They train every day. They're, they're disciplined. They live a life that's that way. They, athletes, they, they they're, they're sort of have that lifestyle of, of self-discipline. But is that what's in view in the verse? Let's look at the verse more carefully and see, what, and see what's in that verse. It says right here in, in my Bible, if anybody competes as an athlete, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. It's true that, that an athlete needs to train, but that's not in view here. This is, this is, if you will, race day. This is the competition day, that, that the athlete needs to compete according to the rules. And so Paul is saying, you know, hey, Timothy, come alongside for just a minute. You know, Timothy, remember the athlete, because the athlete needs to compete according to the rules. You got that, Timothy? Uh, yeah, I, I, I got that. Compete according to the rules. Does that, does that resonate strongly with you? Do you love that? I love competing according to the rules. No! You know, as, as, as Christians, we're like, rules, rules, schmools. This is, that's not, we don't, we don't, we're not, that's legalistic. We don't go by the rules. But Paul is saying, no, the athlete, he needs to compete according to the rules. Now, if you're an athlete or you've participated in an athlete, probably if you're honest with yourself, the last thing that you would think of is, is I'm going to go out there and break the rules, right? We, we don't think that way. We'll think, no, you know, I want to I follow the rules. I want to compete according to the rules. Yeah. And, of course, there's maybe some interesting examples of people who broke the rules, and I don't want to go there in the sermon, because I don't think that that's where we want to bring our focus. We say, 
No, we want to, we need to live our life just like that athlete who would never, who would not want to break the rules. Can you think of any rules, and I'm putting that in italic, quoted, of the Christian life? Sure. There are rules, if you will. There's a certain way that's to govern the way that you and I live our Christian life with patience, with long-suffering. We're to have a long fuse on our anger and not burst out at people. When we do, when we burst out at people and launch, when we're impatient, we're, we're out of bounds. We're, in a sense, we're breaking the rules, aren't we? And Paul says, Timothy, Timothy, you know, if you're going to live this Christian life, you need to be like the athlete who stays in bounds. Stay in bounds. If you want want to have that endurance that's going to stand the test of troubled times, stay in bounds. Be like an athlete who says, "I, I would not even think of breaking the rules. good example of a hero here and as an athlete would be, would be um, Eric Little. Eric Little is sort of my hero here. Uh, he, was, he was an athlete that, you know, he was the person who under conviction of his own personal conviction would not race on the Lord's Day. And so he gave that up. And, and at the Olympics, they said, well, you know, I'm really, I'm really making a long story short here. There's a beautiful story. They said, well, you've, you've trained for the 100-yard dash. Um, but he says, I'm not going to do it because it's on the Lord's Day. So he ended up running the 400. He was in lane 8 of the 400, which is the worst lane ever um, because you can't see your competitors because they line up on a staggered start. And he ended up breaking the world record. And his record stood for many years to come. He won. He was a disciplined athlete. Um, he ended up... Uh, in a prison camp in uh, China because he was also a missionary. And he brought with him there to the prison camp in China several of his disciplines that he had learned as an athlete growing up. He, he brought with him the idea that, um, that he would be completely surrendered to the Lord. In a couple of biographies, I'll read a couple of excerpts from this athlete, Eric Little. The most noteworthy feature of Eric's life was the regular and rapid progress of his spiritual development. It's as phenomenal as the speed with which he ran the 100-yard race. After being yards behind halfway, he would catch up and pass the winning post as easily easily being first, leaving the other competitors standing. In the athletic world, no one knows how he did it. It remained a mystery. But for his spiritual progress, for his progress in the spiritual race, there was one very clear and definite explanation. First of all, absolute surrender to the will of God. It was toward that attainment of that ideal that he directed all his mental and spiritual energies. Absolute surrender to the will of God. As he was competing in the race, as a, as a model athlete, as a model Christian athlete, his motto, if you will, was absolute surrender to the will of God. He goes on to say, 
one word stands out from all the others as the key to knowing God is to having his peace and assurance in your heart. It's obedience. Obedience to God's will is the secret of spiritual knowledge and insight. It's not the willingness to know, but the willingness to do God's will that brings about certainty. Not the willingness to know, but the willingness to do God's will that brings about certainty. In another book that describes his life in some dialogue and interview between uh, other people who were um, prisoners of war in this camp, um, someone asked, what was the secret of Eric Little's uh, walk with the Lord? And this person responded, every morning around 6 a.m. with curtains tightly drawn, this was in the concentration camp, uh, to keep the light from shining, our peanut oil lamp, the, the, the Prowling sentries would think that someone was trying to escape, so they would keep the, um, they would climb out of the top bunk, keep the drapes closed, and the sleeping forms of his dormitory mates. Then, in the small Chinese table, two men would sit close to each other, with the light just enough to illumine their Bibles and notebooks. Silently, they would read, they prayed, uh, they thought about the day's duties, and noted what could what should be done. Eric was a man of prayer, not only at set times, though he did not like uh, to miss a prayer meeting or the communion service when such could be arranged. He talked with God all the time, naturally as one uh, can who enters the school of prayer to learn of this way of inner discipline. Um, he seemed to have, it seemed that uh, to no weighty, he had no weighty mental problems. His life was grounded in God in faith and trust. Paul tells Timothy to be like the athlete. Here's, a, here's an athlete. Here's his life. It, it is explained in biographies, and it says what he did. Absolute surrender to the will of God. Uh, a life consistent in prayer and in being in God's word. Curious, isn't it, that he had no mental problems, that his life was founded, that was secure in God, faith, and in trust. You know, the Lord, the scripture is our anchor, isn't it? It is our anchor. J. Vernon McGee has a pithy comment regarding Christian athletes. He says, um, the only exercise some Christians get is jumping to conclusions running down their friends and sidestepping responsibility and pushing their luck. That's not the kind of exercise Paul is talking about. Be like an athlete. Again, you know, as we're walking through these and looking at pictures, it's not to kind of muse on them. It's, it's to enter in. It's, these are invitations. Um, you know, when it's all said and done, there's more said than done. And, and so these models, the, the soldier, join with me in suffering. Be like this athlete. These are not static pictures to muse on. These are each invitations to participate in. And so if we were to take home with us a couple of Attitudes and actions of the athlete. The attitude might be absolute surrender to the will of God. And the action might be talk with God all the time. Next we come to the farmer. 
the farmer. And we have here in verse 6 where it says, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. The hardworking farmer. We've already got the attribute of the farmer that we are to consider, that we are to muse on, that we are to understand, and we are to participate with. The farmer, his, he is hardworking. Now, as I look at the audience, I think there's probably very few, maybe a few, who know what farming is. I don't. Most of us, probably 95% of us, are city slickers. We have no idea what farming is. We just, we just don't know. And uh, so uh, I was reading, like I normally do, the Ag Daily. <laughs> uh, a plug from this woman by the name of uh, Amanda uh, Zalucki, Zalukij. And uh, she, her family is a family farmer. And uh, she herself actually is an attorney, which is interesting. But her, uh, her family is a, fa- a farming family in southwest Michigan. They farm corn and they farm soybeans. That's what they do. They're farmers. And I need to explain this to you so that you will know kind of an idea of what farming is like. Because it's like we have no idea. We're city slickers. See, we go to Safeway and we buy things in plastic. You know, it's just like that's where it comes from, right? And so she relates um, this uh, little bit of a story that I'll read at length. And, um, and she's, uh, she is the daughter and her family farms. So she says, usually when dad comes for a visit, he brings a change of clothes. That's mostly because I sometimes have little projects that need help with. There's inevitably something that dad thinks needs to be serviced, cleaned out, or trimmed out around the house. And he arrives with his work clothes and boots and has something cleaner and nicer to put on before we get dinner. But one recent weekend, we were finishing our plates, and he said something that I wasn't really ready to hear. We need to check the water softener to see if it needs more salt. And I don't think that you have any more bags, so we'll need to grab some, he stated, because the harvest will come soon. The harvest will come soon. To most people, that warning probably doesn't seem ominous. It's just a harvest. Sure, there will be more activity on the farm, and they'll all be busy working in the fields. It's a big production, and the, and the insane feat each year, no big deal, right? No, it is a big deal. Because that statement means one thing to me. It means I'm going to be a harvest orphan very soon. What's a harvest orphan? Said more dramatically, it means I'm losing my family while they're trying to bring in the crops for the next few months. They'll start early in the morning and they'll finish long after dark. They'll work seven days a week. In other words, no little projects for dad for a while. If I want to see him, I'll have to find him in the field or climb into the tractor or the combine or the truck. If I want to share a meal, I'll have to either cook something or pick it up and deliver it. I won't watch college football with them together either. I won't take my dog, uh, Misha, for a walk on the farm. And if I stay for the weekend, I'll mostly be by myself. I'll admit that I didn't make up the term completely on my own. Uh, First, I saw the idea when ag writers started calling themselves harvest widows. These are wives who suddenly become single while their parents or their husbands toil in the field. They work and take care of the kids, keep the, the house and the lawn and cook all the meals and do all the school runs and constantly wash laundry so they feel as though that they lost their husbands to the harvest. Don't get me wrong. I still love the harvest. Fall is my favorite time of season. 
I love riding the combine and the, the hustle and bustle. I love being part of the massive operation that mostly runs flawlessly. I enjoy seeing the bounty from all the hard work and the patience. It sort of feels like running a victory lap, but it also means that my family is going to be really super busy, really super busy. They won't be around as much for the next few months, and I won't see them as often. It's a sacrifice, and I use that word loosely, that is that they're doing to do what they love. That's why we so often have um, been referring to farming as a lifestyle. It really is. It really is. Hard work. Super busy. Paul tells Timothy, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops being a hard-working farmer. As I said, when it's all said and done, there is more said than done. The hard-working farmer is not a glamorous metaphor like an athlete or a soldier or a farmer. He begins his demanding work early and often goes late, limited finally by the dimming of light of day. His work is often tedious, boring, and unexciting. Not many farmers Ever, um, not many farmers ever become celebrities like soldiers or athletes. He's often called to endure cold, heat, rain, and drought. He plows whether the soil is hard or not. He waits, not for a convenient time, but because the seasons do not wait for him. When it's time to plant, he must plant. When weeds appear, he must extract them. When fruit ripens, he must harvest. What drives the farmer to labor under such grueling, unpredictable conditions? It's not because he's looking forward to the bountiful harvest. Is it not because he's looking forward to the bountiful harvest? While he tarries, the bulk of his labor is tedious, humdrum, and exciting. Realize that with a farmer, we, we're, we're now looking at this agricultural picture here. It's, it's the sowing and reaping aspect of life when things don't happen immediately, when things take time, when things take patience. And Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, remember the hardworking farmer. And he closes with these words here in verse 7. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I'm a visual learner. You know, I I like looking at things and and seeing an illustration. I kind of get lost in lengthy explanations. But I wonder if for you this morning or this afternoon, if when you drive home, you think about your life. And if if your life were to be characterized by some model, some illustration, what would that be? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text this morning. The example that we have to enter in, to join the invitation of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Lord, help us to take this home with us. Help us to adjust. Help us to receive an invitation, to receive a baton, and to hear what you would have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.